So it's Sunday morning, and here we are again, around God's Word at church, just like we were last Sunday. Here we are again. And I trust that every Sunday morning, there is a level of anticipation and excitement as you think through what we'll be doing today, coming together as God's people, singing songs of praise, gathering around His Word, fellowshipping together. Here we are again And that you're excited to do that, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. At the same time, there is possibly a note of sobriety as you think through each and every Sunday, because here we are again. Christ still hasn't returned, and sin is still a real thing in all of our hearts. Sin resides with us. Sin abounds in the world around us. Here we are again. And the problems that you know of, the issues that you fight against, the expressions of sin in your life persist. Most of the problems that we bring on a Sunday are not quickly fixed, but the Lord is dealing with them according to his wisdom over a long period of time. And so we rise on a Sunday morning and come to church, and with a note of sobriety, we acknowledge, here we are again. And you can extend that analogy to a Monday morning. It's not unique to Sundays. You get up tomorrow morning and you do your Monday thing, whatever that is. For many, you'll get up and you'll go to work. And you'll do the same things on Monday tomorrow as you did last Monday and the Monday before. Here we are again. We just keep doing the same things. And there's many blessings and there's many expressions of God's goodness in that. And at the same time, the reality of sin persists. Here we are again. That is the sense very much of this episode in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel communicates, here we are again. If you think about the big picture where we've come so far, we've moved from the grandeur and the glory of God's creative work in Genesis chapter 1, where he fashioned his creation and set man at the privileged position to preside over all of it, As his image bearer, we've fallen from there. Genesis chapter 3, man rebels. And then 4 through 6, we see sin explode. Sin gets out of control such that we read that God regretted that he had made mankind. And then he wipes the slate clean. He floods the whole earth. It is an act of universal judgment. At the same time, it's an act of salvation as he preserves one family, Noah and his family, he preserves them, and as he emerges from the ark and the flood waters subside, we start afresh. And the flood narrative is very interesting because it's crafted and it's told in such a way to be evocative of those first few chapters. Noah is presented to us as a new Adam in a new creation. And so we might be forgiven as we read of Noah emerging from the ark, we might be forgiven for having a a high level of hope that this time it's going to be different. And then just a few chapters pass, and we read of this strange building experiment. The Tower of Babel, it's written very much to remind us of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The message that Moses tries to communicate is here we are again. 
It's crafted and presented to us as a full narrative, take two. The universal flood didn't deal with sin at the heart level. It still is an issue for us. And the first section of Genesis is coming to a close. Genesis 1 through 11 is the first major section of this book. We're close to the end of that. And so the feeling that this episode communicates is one of despair. It is a dark, somber episode at the end of the first major unit in this book. And that's intentional. Moses wants us to understand in mankind, in and of himself, there is no hope. We can't fix the mess we're in, and thus it should drive us towards a consideration of God's abundant grace. And there is an expression of God's grace, even within this passage. And then as you project forward and you see where things are headed, you start to see that God is committed to fixing this problem. We start to see traces of the gospel here in Genesis, and the despair of the Tower of Babel incident should prompt us to look all the more to God's grace and to rely on him. Now, the unit divides quite nicely into three sections. If you notice when I read it, there are three times that we read, come, let us. The first time in verse 3, the next time in verse 4, and then the last time in verse 7. Come, let us. Twice from men and once from God himself. And we can arrange our thoughts this morning around those three speeches. And if I were to give them titles, I would say the first is plans to build. The second, come let us, gives us a purpose for building. And the the third is reasons to confuse. Plans to build, purpose for building, and reasons to confuse. And in all of them, we see the progression and the manifestation of our sin, and then God's gracious response that should point us towards the gospel. Beginning with the first then, plans to build, we read here in the first section of the book some concerning ideas. It's not an outright outright manifestation of sin, at least not yet. But in these first few verses, as we start to see the intention to embark upon this building project, there are some reasons for us to be rightly concerned. You see, we begin, now the whole earth had one language in the same words. Moses is being emphatic there. One language, the same words. He's trying to stress the unity they had, at least in their communication. And that's going to be the the vehicle that they use for sin. And then, verse 2, the people migrated from the east. Well, that's the first warning sign. In the book of Genesis, there is a motif that transpires all the way through the book relating to the direction of eastward. There is a motif in the book of Genesis wherein we see traveling in an easterly direction is bad news. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve rebel against God. God pushes them out of the garden. He expels them and he sets them where? East of Edom. He pushes them east of the garden, and that's where the cherubim are set up to guard to stop them entering back in. And that begins a trajectory that's continued all the way through the book of Genesis, wherein any travel eastward results in problems. So in the very next chapter, Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. God punishes him, 
And it says he set him east of Eden, yet further east than they already were. So if you picture the geography, mankind has been put out of the garden to the east of it, and then Cain gets pushed further east as a result of his sin. If we skip forward a few chapters, we read about Abram and Lot, and they come to a point where they separate, and Abram says, you you pick which way you want to go, and Lot goes east. Bad choice. Immediately, he runs into trouble, and Abram needs to rescue him. And there are more and more examples of this. There is a, a motif that runs all the way through the book of Genesis, wherein traveling east is associated with sin. So as we read in verse 2 of this episode, the people migrated from the east, and by inference, they're going further eastward now. It seems to be that they're not making a very good choice. We then read they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Again, this raises concerns. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God gave the mandate to mankind, and he said, you are to go. The mandate that rests on mankind is to fill the earth. Fill the earth, populate it as image bearers. And so there should be, in Genesis, obedience to God looks like a continual movement because the mandate is by no means fulfilled. And there's a number of examples in Genesis where settling is associated with sin, and this would be one of them. The people are making a foolish choice to not obey the mandate. Just prior in that genealogy, we call this the table of nations, and here there's a very evident dispersing. The people are going out. It's a good thing because they need to make manifest God's glory the whole earth over. And we read in 11.2, these people decided to settle. And so we're having concerns about this building project. Thirdly, they say, come Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. What's the problem there? If you've ever been to Israel, you'll know it's the land of rocks. It's what the Jewish people call it. It's the land of rocks. There are huge rocks everywhere. And they joke that when God made Israel, he sneezed and spilled all his rocks over the land. And so the the building projects in Canaan and and later on in in the Bible in, in Israel the building projects were very different to elsewhere in the ancient Near East. They would get these huge boulders and they would figure out a way to put them all together and and their buildings looked different to, say, the Egyptians. In Egypt, they had this technology where they would fashion bricks just like this. They would cut out from their rock these bricks and they would build their structures. And you say, so is it that God's against technology? That's not the problem. What we know about those building projects in Egypt and other nations is that on every single brick would be carved the name of the king who presided over the project. His name was stamped on the brick so as to say, this is my deal. It's all about me. And then the building projects themselves were always in an effort for the king to validate his reign before the gods. That was always the reason for them building. They would build huge structures in an effort to say to the gods, I'm something, I'm a big deal, and look at my building project, it says so. So again, in these first few verses of this episode, there is no outright manifestation of sin that we could point at the text and say, this is what they did wrong, that's yet to come. But there are clues, there are enough clues to suggest that they are making a foolish 
choice. If I was to summarize the first come let us, it would be come let us make a foolish decision. That's the notion of what's going on here at the very beginning. And as the Bible shows us time and time and time again, the foolish decision is that which leads to the sinful decision. You read the book of Proverbs and all the way through from beginning to end, there is a very tight relationship between folly and sin. Think about how it is you go about your day. My guess is it's not that you get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to choose to sin against the Lord. That's not how sin works. Rather, you get up in the morning and you make a foolish choice. You haven't studied the wisdom that God has given to us in his word, and so you make a foolish choice, and it's your foolish choice that leads to your sinful actions. And this is what's going on at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 11. And what this text would commend us all to is a study of God's wisdom. To even study the first few chapters of Genesis where we see this principle played out. There's enough folly in the first few chapters of Genesis to understand that it never leads to righteous behavior. Cain brought an improper sacrifice before God, and God warned him. He said, your your countenance has dropped. Sin is crouching at the door. It is ready to consume you. You made a foolish choice. Would you change? And he doesn't. And so sure enough, he becomes a murderer. He brings a second-rate sacrifice, and that leads to him murdering his brother. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were pleasing to the eye. But you don't have to act on it. God has put in place established boundaries in his created order. To see it is not necessarily to then run headlong into it, and that's exactly what they do. We get in the first 11 chapters of Genesis a whole theology of sin Anything you could ever want to know about sin can be found in these first 11 chapters of Genesis and tightly connected is foolish behavior. And these men go about some foolish choices. And that leads to then their intentions for building with the second come let us in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's not that often in the Old Testament, and especially Old Testament narrative sections, it's not that often that we're given the intentions of man's heart as clearly and as plainly as we are here. Normally, the narrative is describing what we can see, and we're trying to make inferences, why did he do that? Why did he respond that way? Very occasionally, the text tells us this was what was going on in their hearts. And so the the builders here just are outright. They're not ashamed in any sense. They say, let's build, and here's why. And this is their sin, and we can break it down into three particular sins. First of all, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. There's the first strike. The city and the tower, the original syntax could easily be construed as let us build a city tower. So rather than let us build a city and a tower, let us build a city tower. If you've ever seen the famous painting of the Tower of Babel by an artist called Bruegel, 
he, he paints this enormous structure, huge in its circumference, going up to the heavens. And if you look closely, there's all these men walking around the structure. It is a city tower. And quite possibly in that alone, there is a notion of self-reliance. We're going to build something so enormous that we can not depend on anything else. This is our city tower. But the bigger issue is that they're building it up to the heavens. You have to understand this is not an effort on the part of these men to have a richer relationship with the Lord. They're not saying, let's build a city tower to try and have better communion with God. If we could just be up there. No, they're trying to make themselves equal with God. They're trying to get up to the point to which they were not given. God did not establish them to have any kind of existence in the heavens, but very clearly, he said to them, you are to be on earth. He gave them a lofty position on earth, but he very definitely set them on earth. And as they build a city tower up to the heavens, this is their attempt to become equal with God. Secondly, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. There's strike two. The notion of a name in the ancient Near East was far, far broader and more meaningful than our names are today. Our names today are the means by which we know each other. That's what we're called. A name in biblical times told you just about everything you want to know about that person. Their name meant everything. It communicated their character, who they were, where they come from. It it invokes their whole life. When you invoke a person's name, it invokes their whole life. Is why we say in our prayers, in Jesus' name. It's not just that it's right and proper to say his name before we say amen, but what we're communicating in that theological statement is, God, I am coming to you. These prayers are being offered to you through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name. I can't give you prayers apart from Jesus. And so we say, there's our shorthand, in Jesus' name. Think about that when you pray. These folks wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, why is that a problem? Again, because in Genesis chapter 1, God named them. God said, you'll be called Adam. It means from the earth. And with that, there's a whole theology that is wonderful. It's glorious. You're going to be called Adam. You're taken from the dirt. And I'm going to set you above all of the created order. You occupy the the prime spot above everything else. That's what it means to be Adam. And I'm going to set my image on you in a way that no other creature on planet Earth gets my image. You're the only one. And I'm going to give you this glorious mandate to rule over everything in this vice-regent-like position. So God had given them this privileged position that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 8 when he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The psalmist there is just astounded at God's goodness to this person. And yet these people say, but it's not enough. We want to go further and actually we want to decide our name for ourselves. We want to to push back on what you've determined is good for us. In Genesis chapter 1, you gave us our job description, and it is glorious, and it's not enough. So we want to make a name for ourselves, and we want to determine the limits by which we live. If 
in building a tower up to the heavens, they were trying to make themselves equal with God. By seeking a name for themselves, they were trying to supplant God. They were now trying to take the role of God and say, we get to name ourselves. And think again, just how obnoxious and arrogant this is. God had even said to Adam, you get to name everything else. I name you, you name everything else. As Adam names everything else, he presides over the the kingdom. But he doesn't get to name himself. And that's what these builders were trying to do. Thirdly, they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is a strange comment, right? If you had read the Tower of Babel incident and I said, what, what's the issue? Tell me the sin. Perhaps you would say, well, it's pride. And, and I agree, at a fundamental level, it's pride. But how then do you account for the fact that the text tells us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth? Why was that even important to them? It's important to them because in Genesis chapter 1, again, God says, you need to go. You need to fill the whole earth. And if I can summarize that Adamic mandate, as we refer to it, God says two things. My image is on you. Fill the earth. Take those two thoughts together. My image is on you. Fill the earth. To be an image bearer is to be a representative of God. You you represent me in a way that no other creature does, and with that, fill the earth. So the way that I summarize the Adamic mandate is that God was saying to Adam, make my glory known in a way that no other creature on planet earth is able to, In 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 a manner and to an extent that nothing else can, you make my glory known. Fill the earth with image bearers. Cause my glory to be manifest the whole world over, not just here in Eden. That was the glorious commission that he gave to mankind. And the builders at Babel fold their arms and knowingly defying that say, we will not go. We refuse to get on board with the mission to make God's glory known. It is just obnoxious sin that they're involved here, that the pride of, of the human heart, certainly, but worked out in such specific ways so as to try and make themselves equal with God, so as to supplant God, and now so as to thwart his mission. And of course, the tragedy is, this, as we think about this text and we're honest with ourselves, is that the same sin resides in our hearts. We really are no different from these folks. We're not necessarily embarking upon a physical building project. But there is in our hearts the same sin, the same tendency to make ourselves equal with God, to replace God, and to thwart his purposes. There is a tendency in our heart that is is vicious and is steadfast to make a name for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to elevate ourselves, to, to stop God's mission because we have our own agendas to advance. Now, the antidote to this is twofold. The antidote to not carrying on in the likeness of the builders at Babel is twofold. Number one, Proverbs 27.2, you live your life by it. Don't praise yourself. Let another praise you, someone else's mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. 
Proverbs 27.2, we're back in the genre of wisdom. How is it I don't display this kind of arrogance? You write it down on your forehead. You preach it to yourself every day. I will not praise myself. Let someone else praise you, says Proverbs, but not your own lips. A stranger, but not your own mouth. This is not a nice to have. This is not an option. This is God's inerrant word commanding you to not be someone who praises yourself. It might be that in your life, praise comes your way. It might be. But don't ever let it be found to come from your mouth. Don't make a name for yourself. Don't praise yourself. That's somebody else's job. And don't think you can get away with it in a very discreet manner. You know what's going on in your heart, but I'm presenting it in a way that doesn't look obnoxious. We can all see it. Pride stinks. It just rises to the surface. You're not kidding anyone. And you're certainly not kidding God. Don't praise yourself. That's the negative side. Thomas Chalmers wrote a famous essay hundreds of years ago called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's free online. The copyright expired hundreds of years ago. You can Google it and get it for free. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You need to read it. When you put something out, when you cast something out that is negative, that's not enough. You need to find the positive equivalent to supplant it with. You are determined to not praise your name, to not praise yourself. But what do I do instead? There's a vacuum created there. You tune your heart to the glory of God's mission as he gave it to Adam and Eve and so also to us. You have to tune your heart to be excited about the glorious privilege that God has afforded to us. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, God said to Adam, you need to fill the earth with my glory. That's your job description. That's why we're here. You have to fill the earth with God's glory. And there's no way in which you'll obey that imperative until you've tuned your heart with the vision of that mandate. If that sits heavy on your shoulders as just another command that you have to obey, there's nothing to say that you won't go about your life in the way that these builders did. The only way you would rise in the morning and be excited to run towards that imperative is to see the glory that is knit in with it. So think about the fact that God made Adam and he placed him from the dirt at the very top of the created order and he says, you're the only one who gets my image, no one else. And now with that, you are able to represent me in a way that the cows can't. You're able to represent me in a way that the mountains can't. You can make my glory manifest in a way that the oceans aren't able to. That's what he's saying. And you get to do that. And Genesis 3 throws a spanner in the works. But don't miss how the story continues. Repeatedly, throughout the prophetic corpus in the Old Testament, the prophets say, there is a day coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Over and over, the prophets reach forward in salvation history and say, there's a day coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. They're playing off Genesis chapter 1. The mandate was, make my glory known. And the prophets say, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now think about the, the language 
It's kind of a weird way of saying it. Sometimes they say the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, others the glory of the Lord will cover the earth, okay? But then they say, as the waters cover the sea. One of the things we used to do in the submarine was a deep dive. So we would go away on patrol for three to four months at a time. We'd be submerged for the whole time. And the whole patrol, we would operate at what we called patrol depth. Don't ask me what patrol depth was. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. But it was relatively safe. Before patrol, we used to go on a, on a, a workout. We, a workup, sorry. We'd go out on a workup. Work so we, we're not on patrol, and it's an opportunity for a few weeks to kind of put the boat through its paces, put the, court, the, the crew through its paces. We would do all our testing and make sure that we're ready for whatever might happen on patrol. And one of the things we used to do during workup was a deep dive. And so we'd go out, and the ocean gets very, very, very deep in certain places. And we'd take the submarine way below the patrol depth. And certain things happen when you do a deep dive. The submarine starts to creak. There would be drops of water coming in through certain hatches. There were guys stationed at all the major hatches, and they were told to measure the leak rate as the submarine kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and the drops would just increase in their frequency. If you were in a cubicle in one of the bathrooms at the time, the whole submarine squeezes and the door gets jammed shut. You can't open it anymore. And other fun things like that. (laughs) None of us enjoyed doing the deep dive. But we had to do it. We had to make sure the submarine was, was up to it. And I think back on that, and it's just a vivid picture of the waters covering the sea. You don't have to go that far down before the mass of water above you is pressing down on you. If we'd gone much deeper, the submarine would have imploded. And I think the prophets are looking forward and saying, there's a day coming when the glory of God is going to bear down on this earth. It's going to push down on every square inch of this planet. Not in an oppressive way. We're not going to fear it. We're not going to resent it. We're going to rejoice in that day. And what you need to do as we wait as God's people is to tune your heart to that glorious vision. To trust his word when it says, it's coming. It doesn't look like it right now. You can look around you and you can't conceive. How is it going to be that the glory of God is going to be manifest here? I can't see it, but I'm going to choose to trust in his word. And I know that as one of God's children, I have the ability to contribute to that vision. I have the ability to advance that vision. As one of God's children... I can be one who makes manifest today in my life, in the circumstances in which God has placed me, something of his glory. And if that's how you live your life, preaching to yourself, Proverbs 27.2, and preaching to yourself the manifestation of God's glory that is to come, then you cannot be a builder at Babel. And that is our responsibility. 
we're all building. We're all building. We're all building something. You just need to decide how are you going to build it. Do you build it for the glory of your name or for the glory of God? Well, God responds to that. God responds, reasons to confuse, the third come let us, verse 7. He says, behold, backing up to verse 6, they are one people, they have one language, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. It's very important to recognize when God says, there's nothing that will be impossible for them now. God doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't feel threatened by their building project. He's not saying, now they might overcome me, they might overpower me. Now that they've done this, the whole plan is a threat. He's not saying that. God is saying, now that they've decided to make this initial step, now that they've decided to make this initial step away from my plan, and they're pursuing their own project so as to make a name for themselves, now there's going to be no end to their sin. He's saying there's nothing impossible for them as it relates to the conception of sin in their minds or the, or the pursuit of prideful endeavors. Now they've done this initial thing, they're just going to keep going. They're going to destroy themselves. My glory is not threatened by their efforts. God will be glorified. So as God responds to that and says, let us go down and confuse their language, you have to see the grace in it. This is God's grace to them. I'm not going to let you keep going in this direction because you are going to destroy yourselves. If the first come let us was come let us make a foolish decision and the second was come now let us make a sinful choice, God responds and says, come let us deal them a gracious blow. Let us deal to them a gracious blow. Exactly the same way as it was in Genesis chapter 3. God put Adam and Eve out of the garden for their own good. It was an act of grace towards them. And here again, we zoom out to note all of the relationships that Moses is forging between this episode and Genesis chapter 3. The language is intentionally very, very similar. Words like the whole earth, the land, the heavens, the sky... In Genesis chapter 1, that's the first time we read of what we call the divine plural, let us make man in his own image. It doesn't occur anywhere else in these first 11 chapters except here. So as the, the people say it, they're using language that God first used. And now God uses the same language again. And, and what's happening is all of these connections are being formed back to Genesis chapter 3. Why? So as to communicate to us, here we are again. Sin exploded, four through six. God wiped the slate clean in the flood. Noah emerges, and here we are again. And as you appreciate the desperate situation that we find ourselves in as we read this episode, we are striving to see a glimmer of hope. God deals them a gracious blow, but that's not the final word. His gracious blow to confuse their language is not by any means, the final solution. How is it that we're going to avoid sins like this moving forward? How is it that this mess is going to be resolved 
ultimately, right now you disperse everyone, but ultimately, what's the solution? And God starts to show us it even here. The very next verse, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Shem is a play on the Hebrew word for name. These are the generations of the named one. Very subtly, God is responding by saying, you will have a name, but I get to choose it, not you. And then you fast forward to chapter 12, and we see the calling of Abram, and it's not incidental that the first thing God says to Abraham is, go, get back on with the mission. The mission is to fill the earth with my glory. And he says to Abram, go, start obeying the mission. And if you do, what will I give you? I will make for you a great name. I will set on you a great name. So from Shem, the name, to the great name with Abram. And you can keep tracing that out. And as you know, the line of Abram is which, that which gives birth to the nation of Israel, from which we get the tribe of Judah and the line of David, and ultimately Jesus Christ, who in Daniel chapter 7 demonstrates all humility. He's God of very God, and yet he's not striving to assume a position that God has not given to him. And so God responds and elevates him over every nation, every tribe and tongue. And Paul says in Philippians, he gave him a name that is above every other name. And what does Christ do? Well, he calls us into the church. And many have argued that Acts chapter 2 is a reverse of Babel. In Genesis 11, the people are dispersed. They're given all these different languages. They can't understand one another. As the church is birthed, they're brought back together with this strange gift so that now communication is possible. God seems to be reversing what is going on in Genesis chapter 11. And then at the very end of the Bible is where this story finishes, Revelation 18 through 21. It forms this huge chiasm, this huge theological sandwich. And in Genesis 18, we read of the final and the ultimate destruction of Babylon. Genesis 11 is the birth of Babylon, God's enemy through all of Scripture. In in Revelation 18, they're finally destroyed. The wicked city is put to an end. And then the mirror image in that chiasm is the new city, the new Jerusalem. And notice, it's not built by men. It's not built by men up towards the heavens, but the new Jerusalem comes down. It comes down from heaven. And that is God's response to the desperate sin that we see in Genesis chapter 11. And so our decision is whether we'll be on board with that mission, whether we're going to align ourselves with that storyline, whether we're going to build for our own name or for God's name, whether we'll refuse to praise ourselves attune our hearts to the glorious mandate that he's given to us and look forward to that day when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and we will see Christ and be with him forever. He'll wipe away every tear and we'll praise him for all eternity. Pray with me to close. Our Father, we do thank you for this text. It is so familiar to us, and yet it is so challenging when we are honest with ourselves and our own hearts. 
we see in us the same sin that was in the hearts of these men, and we are guilty. We confess that we are guilty of seeking to make a name for ourselves, of building in such a way that we would want to be equal with you and replace you and to advance our own mission. And we see in that the desperate situation of mankind. We're in a hopeless situation, and we cannot save ourselves. But we praise you for your grace. We thank you this morning that you dealt them a gracious blow. You didn't allow them to persist in their sin. And then immediately, we see the response of you to raise up a a generation led by Shem. He has a name given to him by God. And then Abram's commissioned to go and get back on with the task. And you promise him a great name. And it encourages us to look forward to Jesus. He received the name above all names. And we want to anchor ourselves to him. We want to anchor ourselves to him and we know that 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 means faithfulness to the local church. The church is the bride of Christ and this is where we want to be because it's, it's by being here that we can learn to build in such a way that we don't seek to praise ourselves, we don't seek to make a name for ourselves, but our whole lives can start to be oriented around the fame of Jesus Christ. I do pray this morning that you would give us wisdom, give us resolve by your grace to order our steps around the fame of Christ. Father, keep us back from our sin. Would you hem us in so that we wouldn't be allowed to pursue those things in such a way that we're elevating ourselves, but rather lead us graciously by your word through our prayers and our fellowship. Lead us graciously so that every part of our lives is putting Christ on display knowing that that is the very best for us. It is, only, it is the only true way to, to build. And we look forward to that last day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We commit ourselves to you. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.